It's the most wonderful time of the year, and I don't mean Christmas. This is Adashina Koiki. Once again, you're listening to the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. It's been a little while since we've gotten a podcast out to you, but this is episode number 25 of the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, and I reference the most wonderful time of the year, and for me... It's March, and with March in sports comes March Madness, and all of the conference tournaments are about to get underway. Some of them have already gotten underway. Right now, we are on the campus of St. Francis College, where we just took in the quarterfinal matchup in the Northeast Conference Tournament men's basketball between the number four seed, the St. Francis Brooklyn Terriers, and the number five seed, the Mount St. Mary's Mountaineers. It was the road team, the number five seed, the Mountaineers, defeating uh, the Terriers by a score of 60 to 51. And one of our guests on episode number 25 is the head coach of the Mount St. Mary's Mountaineers, Jamian Christian, in his fourth season. A couple of years ago in 2014, he led the Mountaineers to the NCAA tournament and the Northeast Conference championship. And I caught up with him after another road win in conference tournament play. He won a couple of games on the road in the 2014 Northeast Conference Tournament. He does it again in 2016. So I end up asking him a few questions. What's the secret to winning on the road in conference tournament play? And there's talk about milkshakes in our conversation as well. Milkshakes play a big part uh, in our conversation. You'll know why. But our feature interview on episode number 25, we go from the hardwood to the ice, and we got a chance to talk with Caitlin Samini. She is the lead NWHL writer for today's Slapshot and co-host of the podcast Don't Snow the Goalie, and we talked about everything on the ice. National Women's Hockey League, Canadian Women's Hockey League, the National Hockey League, the trade deadline passing in the NHL, the Isabel Cup playoffs about to get underway in the National Women's Hockey League, the Clarkson Cup championship game about to take place in a couple of weeks in the CWHL, and we touched on it all. And it was a pleasure uh, catching up and talking with uh, Kate, talking about all things uh, hockey in America, in North America, excuse me. So uh, most of our conversation centered on the National Women's Hockey League in its inaugural season, a very successful season, about to conclude in a couple of weeks with the Isabel Cup championship round. And uh, Caitlin and I got a chance to talk all things hockey for a good while. So uh, that is our feature interview with Caitlin Samini. Then after that, um, our interview with Jamie and Christian, head coach of the Mount St. Mary's Mountaineers men's basketball team. So enjoy the interview with Caitlin first, then Jamie and Christian. Those interviews will start in another couple of seconds, and we'll see you at the very end of the show. If you're a fan of hockey, outside of the beginning of the Stanley Cup playoffs, this might be the perfect time for you. The trade deadline came and went in the National Hockey League. We're going into the final month plus of the National Hockey League season, that playoff push uh, for the Stanley Cup playoffs. The Isabel Cup playoffs start on Friday, the inaugural season of the National Women's Hockey League entering its playoffs and four teams all four teams in the national women's hockey league competing for the isabel cup and in a couple of weeks time on march 13th the championship game of the canadian women's hockey league the clarkson cup will take place between Le canadien du montreal against the calgary 
Inferno. And joining us right now on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, we are pleased to be joined by Kate Semini, lead NWHL writer for today's Slapshot and one of the co-hosts of the podcast, Don't Snow the Goalie. And first of all, Caitlin, thank you so very much for joining us. And I'm surprised that you're on a podcast called Don't Snow the Goalie when I think you're the type of person that after the whistle blows, you would put on the brakes in front of a goaltender and snow a goaltender. Excuse me? <laughs> what? No, maybe not. Oh, that is so, so rude. Oh, okay. You, I, I, You're I, I, so vulnerable. <laughs> I, I don't know if I can be on this podcast now. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I kid. I kid. You know, I always try to bring uh, moments of levity along with talking about um, the topics at hand. But no, Kate, you're a great person. You would absolutely play within the rules. Okay, so. Um, Single tenders, sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Um, we definitely want to start talking hockey. But before we actually talk about actually on the ice. Uh, just a couple of weeks back, and even last week, uh, we were in Princeton, New Jersey, um, and we walked by the hockey arena um, at Princeton University, and Princeton has sent a number of players to the professional ranks in hockey, and one of those players is uh, Dena Lang, and uh, just a couple of months ago, uh, on December 31st, um, while playing for the Boston Pride, she uh, suffered spinal cord uh, injury and um, so much outpouring and support um, of Dena Lang after that um, um, has just come in and she actually made a, a public appearance just a couple of weeks ago at Harvard at the Bright Landry Center. Just describe the support and the outpouring of support and emotions that ha- that you have seen uh, personally uh, with Dena and uh, after the unfortunate uh, injury on December 31st. So your experience with uh, seeing all the support that so many people have shown for Dena um, in the past couple of months. Uh, well, Dena Lang is, is a she's a very special person. Um, so it's not surprising that people have really stepped up to help her, but it is pretty awe-inspiring to see the amount of support that's come from the hockey community because it's it's come from from all areas it's come from NCAA teams uh it's she you know she was a captain for Princeton it's come from the CWHL she played on the Boston Blades for a season uh won the Clarkson Cup with them last year uh from the NWHL where you know she was a practice player on the Boston Pride um, and from the Boston Bruins, the Montreal Canadiens, um, she, she actually was injured at the Winter Classic, which was a home game for Boston, where they were playing Montreal. Uh, and within the first, some, someone set up a, a GoFundMe account for her, uh, it was a teammate of her sister's, and, um, and within... 23 and a half hours they'd raised over $43,000 of the $50,000 goal they had set. Um, that GoFundMe was not sanctioned by the family, um, so it was taken down and the money was... Um, uh, GoFundMe, I believe, worked with the Lang family to put that money into the Dena Lang Fund, which is a trust fund set up for her care and, um, and expenses, incidentals, while she uh, recuperates and... and um, rehabs. 
if, for more information, I believe you can go. And if you want, uh, anyone wants to uh, donate and uh, find more information, it's uh, www.denalang.org. Dena, D-E-N-N-A, Lang, L-A-I-N-G, uh, uh, .org. And um, I know it's a tough segue to make uh, from speaking about Dena and the support that she has gotten uh, to actually uh, the play on the ice uh, with the four teams in the National uh, Women's Hockey League. But we are going to. Uh, talk about the action on the ice, and it is the um, has been the inaugural season of the National Women's Hockey League. Uh, four teams, the Pride, yeah, Boston. It ended on Sunday. Ended, yeah, the regular. Yeah, it ended on Sunday. The playoffs um, are starting this Friday, so we're still in season one. Um, mm-hmm. Once the uh, uh, playoffs uh, end, then it'll be the uh, end of season one. The uh, uh, Boston Pride, the number one seed, the Connecticut Whale, uh, number two, the Buffalo Buttes are the number three seed. And the New York Riveters are the number four uh, seed. And uh, you've gone to a lot of the games. I'm not sure if you've made it to each of the four home arenas. I think you might have because the All-Star game was in uh, Buffalo. You might have been able to uh, take in games at all four uh, of the arenas. Um, In season number one of the National Women's Hockey League, what has stood out to you the most in terms of either play on the ice or the support off the ice? What has been some of the highlights of covering the inaugural season of the National Women's Hockey League? Um, Well, I believe in covering women's hockey like a sport, so that's my crazy feminist stance. Um, It's a sport. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, So that's that's what's really been standing out to me. Uh, I've been very focused on the the play from beginning to end. Um, Oh, man. When the first game, the opening game was Connecticut Whale uh, home game versus the New York Riveters, and the I I saw that play and I said, "Wow, it just can't get any better than this. This is terrific. This is really different from NHL hockey." But okay, I I see it. It's really good. And uh, three months later, it was so much better. I and I was looking at you know I was comparing video. I was comparing my notes. I was comparing. Um, interviews from players after that game versus players in, you know, December or January. And everyone had noticed just the the leveling up of play because not only have these players had dedicated time and space and money to continue to train, they're also on the ice every single week. You know, somebody like somebody like Kelly Stack, um who, I, honestly, she might be the one player I don't think got better. <laughs> Everyone just started catching up to her. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, even even Hillary Knight. Hillary Knight was really good in September, but by the time you see her in, you know, January, a, she was terrific before, and I think she's actually stepped her game up, which is amazing to me. Um, it just, and there's all these NCAA players who, who came out of the NCAA farm system and now are, um, now are, are, they had no further experience beyond that, but now they're in the NWHL, now they're getting paid to play, and now they are actually training like a pro athlete instead of training like somebody who's got, you know, got work in the morning and whatnot. Um, these women, since it is a part-time job, they do still have work in the morning, they do still have that kind of thing, but... Uh, for a lot of them, the salary allows them a bit of flexibility with their schedule. Um, so it's been really interesting to see this this change. Uh, you know, the off-ice support has had its ebbs and flows. Um, 
as pretty much everything does. When when a game butts up against a New York Rangers game, there's fewer fans at a Riveters game or at a Whale game. But uh, on days that it isn't, it, those seats, those stands are pretty full. It's amazing. Uh, you mentioned that the level of play at the beginning of the season was already high. And then as the months evolved, that you saw the level of play even go up another notch. Uh, can you put a finger as to why that might be the case? Even though it started out pretty high, in your opinion, the level of play? Um, you know, like like I said, I really think it had to do with the fact that they were able to consistently train. Okay. Um, I, both off the ice and on the ice, because they're, they're working out uh, with their team twice a week. They've got mandatory lifts. They've got plyometrics and whatnot that they're working on. And then a lot of them are getting on the ice as often as they can anyways. Uh, all the national team players have, you know, they have um, schedules that are lined up for them by the national team and workouts that are given to them. And um, they have to achieve those by, by the time camp rolls around or it's, it's going to be pretty obvious yeah. they didn't do their job. Um, and so a lot of the girls who are just out of college are tagging along with the national team players and doing the same workouts and trying the same things. And uh, a lot of that, I think, is actually because of the 10000 or 12000 or $15,000 they're making from this because it just gives them a little extra flexibility in their schedule. Like, they, you know, if they're working an hourly job, they, they can afford to skip a few hours a week as opposed to, you know, really doubling down on that. Uh, once again, Caitlin Semini joining us from today's Slapshot and the podcast Don't Snow the Goalie talking about uh, hockey and specifically right now the National Women's Hockey League. As we get ready and embark on the uh, Isabel Cup, uh, the Isabel Cup named after Lord Stanley's daughter, Lady Isabel, uh, the championship uh, awarded in the National Women's Hockey League that will be awarded in uh, just a couple of weeks. Uh, at the beginning of the season, you mentioned Kelly Stack on the Connecticut Whale. The Whale won, I, I believe, at least the first eight games um, of their season and were the pace setters uh, in the National Women's Hockey League. But then uh, the Boston Pride in their embarrassment of riches in terms of talent <laughs> on their roster it really is that funny how much talent um and how many national team members are on uh the boston pride they, they have nine, nine. <laughs> and funny thing is i thought i was about to say eight okay so nine <laughs> right. it, it might it might be eight but i'm pretty sure it's nine, nine. <laughs> uh, uh they finally took hold, not as if, you know, they were in second place for a while and then they uh, just sped past uh, Connecticut and were able to uh, clinch the uh, number one seed. They'll be playing New York and uh, Connecticut, the number two seed, will be playing uh, Buffalo. Is Boston the clear-cut prohibitive favorite to win the Isabel Cup? And if so, why? And if not, why not? Well, let's just say that, that the odds are not against Boston. Yes. Um, <laughs> Definitely not against, for sure. <laughs> um, Boston has has a tough opponent to face in New York um, over the next couple of games. New York is, is really, really hoping to rock them and take a spot in the playoffs. And that's a very tall order for New York because despite the fact that they might be the hardest working team out there, uh, they also, they, they have the least amount of skilled players. Um, they've got a few former national team players, but 
uh, no current ones and no Olympians. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a difficult position they are in. Um, Connecticut is projected to, uh, face Boston in the finals. They are the two top teams. Uh, Connecticut is only, I think it's three points behind the Riveters in, in regular season standings. I'm sorry, behind the Pride in regular season standings. And uh, that's going to be interesting because Connecticut has only ever dropped a game to New York. Uh, I said New York again, but I meant Boston. Well, no problem. <laughs> Connecticut has only ever dropped a game to Boston. And they've actually, uh, of their last four games, three of them were to Boston and they lost all three of them. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I saw. I was able to go to a couple of the Connecticut, uh, New York games. I know one of those ended in a shootout. I believe Kelly Stack when Connecticut was still undefeated, um, mm-hmm. and Kelly Stack I think uh, scored the only uh, goal uh, in the uh, shootout. And Connecticut, uh, you would think, is going to be. If they are able to, they would be the foil uh, to the uh, uh, Boston Pride. You mentioned how the New York uh, Riveters don't have any Olympians, at least um, Olympians on the uh, United States national team, but they have one in goal um, in uh, Nana Fujimoto. Is she the goaltender of all the goaltenders um, in the National Women's Hockey League that will feature in the Isabel Cup playoffs? Is she the goaltender that could uh, stand on her head and maybe steal a series? Well, she has before. Uh, that is how that is how New York beat Boston. Um, I think that also had a lot to do with the fact that the Olympians and the national team players on Boston's roster were in those two games. They had recently come back from, I think it was Sweden, um, where they played in the Four Nations Cup in, uh, I want to say, early November. Um, and the Boston Pride faced the Riveters uh, at Aviator the following, literally two or three days after these players got back, and then the following week hosted them at home. They dropped both those games to them, and a lot of it was because Fujimoto did not let things through. She, she, she's actually, interestingly enough, the only goaltender um, who you would think re- would record a shutout in this league, and she has not recorded a shutout. Brittany Ott of the Boston Pride holds the only shutout for the league. Um, but uh, I, I think a lot of that is because frequently there's just far more shots coming at Fujimoto than um, than are, are easy to to guard against. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, once again, Caitlin Samini joining us, and uh, we know or a lot of people that follow at least uh, women's hockey on the international level uh, would know the Kelly Stacks and the Hillary Knights and some of the other players that have featured for the United States and uh, for the Canadian uh, national team uh, as well. But uh, there, I'm sure there are, have been standouts uh, for these teams that, don't feature on the uh, national team or may not be on the radar of hockey fans, of women's hockey fans that usually follow the international game. Uh, so uh, can you name just a few players that have really stood out that may not be household names because they haven't featured in Olympics or world championships, at least this season, some of the standout players that may not jump out of the page because they may not have the name recognition right now? Oh, first on that list has to be Kelly Stedman. Uh, she is, interestingly enough, a practice player for the Buffalo Buttes. Um, she was asked to be a roster player, but uh, it, currently she's an assistant coach at Robert Morris University down in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. 
And so she could not, she, she decided she couldn't give that amount of time, um, but has found herself attending and playing in the majority of the games. Um, she is far and away their best offensive player. Um, she's, she's in a race, of, a points race with Hillary Knight, and she's played, I think, four fewer games than Hillary Knight. Um, and she was a national team player, but she was cut from the roster, uh, I think, the summer before this summer. It was quite recent. Um, so I, given her performance of late, I'm sure we're going to see her back in action with the national team. Um, uh, that's a really, really interesting question, and I'm still pondering some other names. Um, can I do one per team? Uh, you can do one per team. Absolutely. You can do more than one per team, please. I just, <laughs> no, I just want to make sure for those that may not pick up on uh, some of the uh, players that they're not used to seeing because they're not on national teams or uh, on other platforms, uh, which players have really stood out outside of those. So you can go ahead. Yeah. Well, carte blanche. Okay. All right. On New York, I would pick um, Morgan Fritz Ward, Madison Packer, and Janine Weber. Mm-hmm. Um, also Brooke Ammerman, all four of those players have really good vision on the ice, uh, and can execute really interesting things. Um, Weber, I actually think is better than she's been playing this year. And I think a lot of that is because, uh, her, her, the skill level of her teammates has gone down. Uh, last year she was rostered on the Boston Blades with, you know, a million Olympians (laughs) and, um, she, she was a regular third liner for them, which on the blades was hard to be. Um, I believe she's typically rostered on the second line for New York. And I think she's somebody who should probably be top line for them all the time. Uh, but their system is more of a, a grind it out along the board system. And I think she would probably favor a running gun system a little bit better. Um, on Connecticut, there's Shannon Doyle, who's just a tremendous defender. Uh, she makes a lot of great choices. Um, Jamie Leonoff has been their primary goaltender, and she's very athletic and still remarkably lighthearted about her job. Um, <laughs> she works really hard at it, but when there's a loss, she takes it well. She doesn't let it get her down and it. She focuses anyways. It's really fascinating to see because a lot of the goaltenders, they, they feel it so heavily when they lose. Mm. Um, and let's see, on Boston, on Boston, who would nobody know on Boston? <laughs> uh, we could start with Buffalo if uh, Boston's uh, going to be a tougher nut to crack to try and find someone that uh, may be uh, not as uh, prevalent. Uh, well, there's, there's Stedman on Buffalo, but I think there's also the... Uh, the Skeets Brown Kunichika line. Uh, they are if if Stedman and Duggan are not there, they're routinely the top line. And sometimes even when uh, when Stedman and Duggan are are around, they're the top line. They generate a lot of offense. They have terrific chemistry. Those three, and it's funny because they're all quite small, yeah. um, but their Kunichika she can she can be incredibly physical, and so can Brown and Skeets. Um, but they just have they have good chemistry, they see the ice well, they have that inestimable good vision that's just it's it's so important to have on your team. Um, 
and there's McLaughlin and Nett, but I think everybody would know McLaughlin from the yeah. national team. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Let's do one more on Connecticut, because Connecticut's fun. Um, they've got so many interesting players. They're a really good depth team. Um, uh, people would know Dark Angelo. Um, people would probably know Kelly Babstock, but if they don't, they should. Uh, she's out of Connecticut alongside Chelsea Layden, who's the Riveters' goaltender, uh, or one of the, their three goaltenders, yeah. um, and Morgan Fritz-Ward. Uh, and Babstock is a playmaker. She leads the league in shot assists, which is when you shoot at the net and somebody else scores off that yeah. shot. Um, so, you know, somebody else tips it in or redirects it. Yeah. She's just she's just a very, very smart player. Uh, there's also Tara Tomimoto, who I think was asked to be a... Yes, she was asked to be a roster player, but had to play as a practice player because of visa issues. Um, she is Canadian. Uh, oh, gosh. Jessica Koizumi, who helped really to build that team. She was one of the first players who signed with the Whale, and almost everyone on the whale that I talked to says, oh, yeah, Jess told me about da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, she, you know, she's, she's a really important building block to that team. Um, and she's a, she's a great depth player for them. Uh, Faber on Long. I mean, I could just go on and on about the whale because I'm their de facto beat reporter. <laughs> <laughs> and, and they're really, and they've been uh, outstanding uh, mm. this season. And literally, as you were saying, um, not just in the standings, but just uh, when they've played, uh, they are for the most part, neck and neck um, with being either the best team or uh, the second best team um, in the NWHL. And uh, it's possible that they may be meeting um, in the Isabel Cup final uh, as well. And once again, Caitlin Samini joining us from today's Slapshot and Don't Snow the Goalie and uh, a good number or a number of the players that are in the uh, National Women's Hockey League came over uh, from the Canadian Women's Hockey League. Of course, the NWHL, the first women's hockey league where the players are salaried. And um, correct me if I'm wrong, I think that's the plan for the Canadian Women's Hockey League for next year, right? No, uh, it was initially reported as the 2016-2017 season, but now it's 2017-2018. No, 2017-2018. Okay, well, thank you very much for uh, uh, the clarification. And Le Canadien and the uh, Boston Pride uh, did play um, in the uh, outdoor uh, Winter Classic on uh, New Year's Eve. Um, I guess uh, conventional wisdom would say that for really growing uh, the women's game uh, for women's hockey in North America, that a merger uh, should be imminent of having the uh, best players in the Canadian Women's Hockey League and the best players in the National Women's Hockey League coming together and the teams and uh, forming one league. Um, do you see that uh, happening uh, down the road? And um, I guess what are the uh, uh, logistical issues that really have to be sorted out before something like that could take place? Well, I guarantee you eventually there's going to be one league, but whether or not that happens through a merger uh, is, is going to be really... Um, I don't know that that's the way either league is going to go because they're, they're based on very different models. Um, and the, the two at the top um, see 
their models in very different lights. And I don't know that there's a whole lot of compromise to be had there. When you say the two at the top, do you mean uh, Danny Ryland and Brenda Andrus? I do. Listeners. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> no, just making sure for, no, for the audience that knows the top two. Okay, yes. Yeah, so the commissioners of each league. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I'm sure at some point the either the Canadian Women's Hockey League is going to expand into uh, the U.S. further than Boston and uh, make a go of it, or the same will be the same will happen for the NWHL. Um, you know, there's a there's always a third option, which is that neither league ends up su- succeeding in the long run, and a third one rises from the ashes. The CWHL rose from the ashes of the um, of the WHL and the, or WWHL, I'm sorry, Western Women's Hockey League, and the NWHL took the name of the original NWHL. Uh, there's, there's just so many, there's so many forms that, that this could take, but I do agree with you. Eventually there's going to be one league where all the best players can compete, and I really can't wait to see that because I think when you look at uh, Les Canadiens de Montreal, and you look at the Boston Pride, those two teams need to play each other, and they need to play each other regularly so they can beat each other up a little bit so the rest of the league can can maybe win a game or two against them. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so the Canadians and Bruins beat up each other in an original six matchup in the Le Canadien, and uh, the Boston Pride are, I guess, such the class of the league that you would want to see uh, that matchup a good number of times, A, just for the quality of it, and B, just so they can take their lumps against each other and then um, have to play some of the other teams and have to feel what has happened playing against each other and possibly uh, uh, either dropping some games or having a whole lot of competition uh, with the rest of the league. Not that the competition um, in the league hasn't been great in both leagues because it uh, uh, has been. Uh, Speaking of uh, hockey in the United States and hockey in Canada, uh, the World Championships start at the end of this month, and obviously the top two teams are Canada and the United States. Um, Usually when it comes to the World Championships, the United States uh, has that locked, and when it comes to the Olympics, it's Canada. Uh, So, I mean, I guess, um, who do you think has the edge going into the World Championships later on this month? Oh, you know, I'm hearing great things about Finland. Oh, Finland. Okay. Okay. (laughs) No, I was was kidding. (laughs) Oh, oh, I'm so gullible. Darn it. Fooled again. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure sure Finland has earned its spot. Um, uh, You know, I I think it's going to be a real battle. Uh, The U.S. regularly wins these matchups outside of Olympic years, and then come Olympic years, Canada turns on the Jets and the U.S. sputters. Um, I would love to say the U.S., just because I'm a raging nationalist at times, when it suits me. Uh, (laughs) um, But Canada's got a really nice roster. I think this is going to be a fascinating matchup. Uh, we're going to uh, transition uh, to the National Hockey League just a little bit. And um, the trade deadline came and went, and there weren't too many uh, deadline deals. I think six deadline deals on deadline day. But a lot of the uh, moving and shaking that uh, really caught a lot of people's attention occurred before uh, trade deadline day, even further back when you think about um, the Nashville Predators getting Ryan Johansson uh, from the uh, Columbus 
Blue Jackets and Nashville sending their promising defenseman Seth Jones uh, to Columbus uh, just a few days before trade deadline day. Uh, the Chicago Blackhawks, winners of three of the last six Stanley Cups, um, definitely made sure that if anyone thought that they were resting on their laurels, um, that that's not the case and uh, pulled off a you know blockbuster deal and they reacquired uh, Andrew Ladd, who was a member of the uh, 2010 uh, Chicago Blackhawks championship team. Uh, again, there's resting on your laurels, and then there's what Stan Bowman and the Blackhawks just did uh, just a few days ago. I know the Anaheim Ducks are, I think, 15-1-1 in their last 17 games, but uh, with Patrick Kane's uh, scoring streak earlier in the year, um, I know the playoffs are still a month away, but even with this trade, and I think Andrew Ladd had an assist, and the Blackhawks just beat the best team in the league, the Washington Capitals. Would you still, um, would you still think right now that the Blackhawks are the team to beat? Uh, not just because they have the Stanley Cup, but because they may have the best team in hockey right now, even with the Capitals. Oh, that is a tough question. Um, I, you know, I was watching that. I was watching that Blackhawks Capitals game, and and just thinking to myself that I think this is what we're going to see in the finals. Um, and I hope that's what we see in the finals, those those two teams going against each other, because I, I really do think that that would be a fascinating series with, um, you've just got that incredibly, the, the gifted hands on the Capitals and the amazing aggression on the Blackhawks. Just those, those two going against each other. Obviously, they've got a mix of both on each, but yeah. it's going to be, that's, I, that's my that's my hope. Um, <laughs> no, I, I I do agree with your assessment. I think that the Blackhawks are the team to beat, and I think a lot of that is just because of their general manager Stan Bowman making those really really savvy moves right before trade deadline. Uh, I pretty much a, October November everybody was counting them out because you know they won they can you know and every other year they've won they've taken a year off in between to rebuild. Yeah. Um, and this year. They just rolled in, and they didn't look great. They looked they looked like they had a cup hangover. You know, their their legs were a little wobbly. Nothing was perfect, and their roster changed quite a bit over the season. There's been a lot of turnover on on the Blackhawks, um, and really by December things had really come together for them. And I, I think Bowman pinpointed those few areas they really needed some help. So they needed to shore up, um, you know, on on forward and. I, I wish they'd shore up their D a little bit more, but that's just me. Um, and I really, I, I think they're going to make a very deep run for it. Um, unless something completely unexpected happens in the postseason, I think we're absolutely going to see them in the Western Conference Finals, if not the Stanley Cup Finals. Uh, you mentioned uh, you would have liked to see have seen the Blackhawks shore up uh, their defense unit. Of course, they have, you know, Brett Seabrook and Duncan Keith, uh, but you don't think that defense core, which has been so instrumental in uh, their three Stanley Cups, you don't think it might be deep enough uh, to possibly uh, uh, replicate what they've done in their Stanley Cup years? Well, Seabrook's Corsi, his, his possession numbers have not been so good of late. Um, he's He's been sub-50, which is not what you want to see from somebody on your Stanley Cup winning team. Um, or, you know, your hopeful Stanley Cup winning team, shall we say. Yeah. And uh, with Keith, I think he's he's really, really good. 
All right, uh, but I think he might be starting to feel his age. He he was doing 36 minutes occasionally. <laughs> occasionally. He was doing 36 minutes nightly uh, during the finals last season. And that really put some wear and tear on his body that I don't think he was expecting because, what is he, 29? Right around, yeah, right around that age, you start to break down a little bit and you don't necessarily realize that. Um, defensemen have a longer shelf life than forwards, but he's still, he's probably not going to be able to do those 36 minutes with the same abandon and hold up throughout the entire end of the season without maybe some more surgery. Who knows? Um, you know, I, I'm certainly not his trainer or his doctor, but, <laughs> but whoever is, I'm, I'm hoping that they've got some like steel rods in his legs or something. I don't know. Um, but I, I really do think they're, they're going to need, um, they're going to need somebody who can step up and eat minutes, uh, in, uh, an amazingly aggressive fashion, as does Duncan Keith. Yep. Seabrook, 30, and uh, Duncan Keith, 32 uh, years old. And, of course, we're not... Oh, man, yeah. much older than I thought. <laughs> yes. and Whoa! Not, and we're not even factoring all of the games they have played um, in the postseason, not just the uh, three Stanley Cup years, but even at least um, one of the uh, uh, championships for the Los Angeles Kings. They got to Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals before, uh, I believe it was... Uh, but Justin Williams uh, that scored uh, the Game 7 winner for the uh, Los Angeles Kings, and now he is on the Washington Capitals, and he, along with, and I'm, I'm sad to say this, former St. Louis Blue, uh, T.J. Oshie, um, and helping the uh, uh, Washington Capitals at least be on a pace to be one of the, if not the best, uh, uh, regular season teams um, in NHL history. Of course, that's subjective because of the eras and because of of uh, no longer having ties, and every game now has to have a winner and a loser. That's been like that for the past uh, decade. But um, the Capitals are known for you know choking. Okay, and I, I hate to say that, but <laughs> you know they've had. <laughs> Uh, yeah, absolutely. All right, yes. Um, so, so I guess that's a perfect match then? The yeah, well, I was, was going to say, don't be sad to see him on the Capitals. I think he suits them much better than he did the Blues. He seems much more comfortable. I guess, um, why, uh, and I'm not sure, okay, why might be, why could this be a different scenario for the Capitals this year? in terms of possibly shedding that label of being choke artists? Um, why could it be different this year? Or are the Capitals just doing this to us again? They're flirting with us, flirting with us, and then they're going to let us down in the playoffs. Could this, why would this year be any different? Oh. Um, or will it not be different? And do you see the Capitals doing what the Capitals usually do in the playoffs, eventually, and flaming out? Oh boy, uh, that's a really tough question for me to answer. Yeah. Um, uh, it's tough for me to answer. It's tough for me to ask. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I I really looking at their roster. I think they made some tough decisions about personnel. Um, say you know, sending away uh, Brooks like um, and you know, I guess really quick is is Braden Holtby what is Braden Holtby in the top like three? I guess, goalkeepers now. I mean, he's been doing really well, but would you put him at the upper, upper, upper echelon of goalkeepers? Uh, Braden Holpe for Washington. Uh, if, if I'm, I, I think Crawford's number two. I think Holpe is number three. Yeah. 
Uh, he's I mean, just... That's statistically, would you put him up yeah. there just... Oh, yeah. Yeah, you would. You no, would. Yeah, no, no elite. problem. Elite, okay. Yeah, he's... he's Position-wise, he's just tremendous. Um, and he's such a solid goaltender. He's really... he's And he's a lot of fun to watch, too, which frequently these, these positionally-minded goaltenders are not that fun to watch, but Holpe, he just makes it great. Um, uh, you know, I... I, I do think they can make a legitimate run, but to answer your first question, I've got no idea <laughs> if they're gonna if they're if they're just playing with us and then and then gonna say oh whatever let's let's go home early yeah let's, yeah, let's go up three one <laughs> okay and then uh, let uh, team just uh, come back on us um, it really has been a pleasure uh, talking oh actually you know what before I even uh, finish uh, of course there's the Clarkson Cup in just a couple of weeks my apologies I just uh, totally uh, forgot about that um, are uh, the Canadians the Canadian are they just the class of the league should they take out Calgary um, I, uh, and win the uh, Clarkson Cup or does Calgary have an um, I don't know I guess an ace in the hole <sighs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's no way anybody but Montreal is winning the <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> see, see, maybe I shouldn't have asked that question. I just should have gone with the goodbyes. But now that I have that on record, okay, if in the event uh, Le Canadien uh, do not uh, win the Clarkson Cup, um, I guess we'll be giving you a call again. Um, but, but, but I guess you're you're. Fairly, and I'll stand yeah. by my word. I'm sure if they do not win the cup, I'm sure something will have happened, like the stadium exploded. Ah, and... <laughs> the supernatural <laughs> will have happened if in the event the Inferno uh, 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 win the uh, Clarkson Cup. But um... the, the Inferno are a great team, but they are not on the same level as the Canadians. They're just, they're not. They're not? Okay, well, uh, we'll know uh, by, I guess, March 13th or March 14th, um, if in the event that it's the status quo and uh, the sun rises in the east and the flowers are blooming, or if there's like the four horsemen of the apocalypse uh, coming down on March 14th because the Inferno uh, somehow upset the apple cart um, in epic proportions um, in the uh, Clarkson uh, uh, Cup championship game. Uh, Caitlin Simini, thank you so very much for the time, and we do hope... Uh, to see you during the uh, Isabel Cup playoffs, um, which start on Friday in uh, Beverly, Massachusetts, um, as well as Stanford, Connecticut, where the uh, Boston Pride and the Connecticut Whale will be hosting uh, the semi-final round um, of the Isabel Cup playoffs. Uh, Caitlin Samini, thank you so very much for joining us, and we cannot wait to talk hockey with you uh, down the road. Thank you for the time. Oh, I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much, Eddie. <laughs> One of the great things about college basketball is March, is March Madness and Championship Week. And a lot of the schools in the smaller budget conferences right now are starting their conference tournaments and anything can happen. And here um, at the Pope Center in Brooklyn, the Mount St. Mary's Mountaineers, the number five seed, defeating the number four seed, the St. Francis College Terriers by a score of 60 to 51, joined right now by the fourth year head coach of Mount St. Marries Jamie and Christian. First of all, Jamie, and congratulations on the win—a 36 to 13 run 
to end the game after being down by 14 points. Only allowed uh, 17 points uh, in the second half. Uh, what happened in that second half? Well, you know, we've got a group of guys that all year long when things have been at their toughest and adversity has seemed to be all around us, the thing they've done the best, they've always rallied around one another. We always find a way to put ourselves in the game. And it's just kind of the group that we have right now. And so we're in that situation. We're down 14 in the second half. Our starting two guard and second team all-league players out of the game. But we just have the mentality that we just step up and we just step put the next person in. We have a ton of confidence in them that they know how to make plays to help our team win. The passion and love that our guys play for one another, it always rains out at the end of the day. And it was a lot of fun. Uh, your leading scorer for the game today, BK Ash, told me uh, that uh, you gave a pretty good speech um, at halftime after being down by 10. Uh, can you share with us at least part of that speech? Yeah, you know, I just told the guys we're fine. You know, they made a, they made a three at the buzzer to push it to 10 to go into half. They had a ton of momentum. I've been in a lot of these games now. Uh, you know, this is, I think we're 5-1 and one, um, in my time on the road in the NEC conference. You know, and you just want to stay in the game on the road. That's what you got to do. You stay in the game long enough, you'll have an opportunity to win. They'll get antsy or, or something like that will happen. So you just got to just stay fine. So I told the guys we're fine. Um, I wanted them to center, center around um, our ability to make plays, to remind them of the game plan we put together. And they did a great job in the second half of, of really following the game plan offensively to a T. Able to score 36 points against a very, very good defensive team. Uh, a lot of teams are going to go on the road and play these conference games, these elimination games. And uh, you just mentioned your success on the road in the Northeast Conference in uh, championship play, conference tournament play. What's the secret, if there is a secret, for that? You know, I just think you should need to, lay, you need to just go have fun. I mean, you know, at this point in the year, I think guys try to overcoach it a little bit. I'm not going to overcoach it. We've coached these guys since the summertime on what we need to do and where the ball needs to go and what shots to take and which ones not to. I want them to have a ton of fun. You know, we'll probably get, we'll get back tomorrow and let the guys go to a movie or do something fun. And, and uh, you know, that's what it's about right now. Um, you know, this is a pressure-filled time for a lot of people, a lot of coaches. I think the job of a head coach is to take the pressure off his guys and to put, his press, put the pressure on their shoulders. And as a leader, you got to do what's best for your team, what's best for our group, is get them to relax, get them to believe in one another, and remind them that anything is a, that you can achieve anything if you believe in one another. Uh, where did you learn that from in terms of trying to take pressure off when in a regular situation like this that uh, more pressure will be on? So where do you uh, derive that from, from your uh, coaching uh, uh, career? I've been really fortunate. Um, the guys I've worked for, Bob Johnson and Emory and Henry, um, uh, maybe an unknown guy, but was an excellent coach, my, my first, first coach I worked for. Then Pat Flannery at Bucknell. Then I worked for Tony Shaver at Wayne Mary, and then, and then Shaka Smart at VCU. All, the, all four of those guys are great tournament coaches. So <laughs> yep. I would like to think that I, I've got a hodgepodge of all those guys of what to do and what not to do. But all those guys, the thing they do best in the month of March is they believe in their team and they believe in their staff and they let their guys go have fun. And I think, you know, I just try to, to emulate those things that those guys do well and just try to put my own little spin on it. How much can you derive from the championship run that you made a couple of years back in 2014, winning a couple of games on the road and being able to either teach or talk to the uh, your guys about um, what you guys did in 2014, although this is kind of a whole new uh, roster from a couple of years ago. Uh, how much can you take from 2014 to help uh, your team in 2016 uh, make this run? Yeah, we take a ton from it. You know, my first year we lost, we won two games in a row and then lost the championship game. A year ago we won uh, one at home, one on, uh, two years ago we won on the road, then one at home and on the road, and then on the road again. Um, and so I just, you know, I think the best, best experience, the best teacher's experience, we got a lot of guys in that locker room with the experience that, uh, that we can do this. Um, and they understand the emotional task it takes. You know, your emotions and your, and your thought process has got to be at the apex this time of year. And so we just talked to our guys a ton about that. You know, in a one-bid league, it's about how you play in March. And so everything in our program has been built 
on our ability to recover in emotional situations. You know, and so I think I'd like to think we're coaching the game the same way we do in, in November, and I think the guys are under, they're just comfortable with it now with how we like to approach the game. How amazed are you at the balance of this league? Of course, Wagner wins the league at 13-5. and five. They're about to face a team in the semifinals that swept them uh, in the regular season in Long Island University. Almost anybody can beat anybody as right now. Uh, coach Christian talking with uh, Glenn Breika, the head coach of St. Francis College. So the uh, two head coaches just uh, sharing a moment um, after the uh, postgame. Um, how amazed are you at the balance of this league? Literally anybody can beat anybody at any given time at the Northeast Conference. You know, it's really special. And you know, that's what happens. In the last two years, we've, had, we've been hit so much by graduation uh, within the league. Um, when I got in the league here, I looked at the roster and said, man, there's a lot of juniors and seniors. And those guys are all gone now. And so what you look at the league now, you have a ton of transfers, junior college kids, and freshmen, and that means that anything can happen on any given day. The coach that really believes in his guys the most and, and just tries to gain them, give them the most experience possible will have the opportunity to win it. Um, the league is special, uh, and whoever wins this league will have a chance to go to Dayton, and we'll have a chance to do something special in Dayton, I'm sure of that. Uh, you mentioned a lot of the coaches uh, that you uh, coached under and took a lot from a lot of different coaches. Being the coach at Mount St. Mary's, of course, uh, Jim Phelan casts a really big shadow uh, in Emmitsburg. And um, uh, what influence has he had on you? Have you had time to talk with him uh, recently? Just what is his influence, one of the greatest coaches in college basketball history on you. And Coach Phelan's just the best. You know, I, I graduated from the Mountain in 2004, so I had a chance to play for him for three years. And I always say this, you know, I committed to him when I was 17 years old, and he's been like a leader and a, and a mentor to me ever since that day. You know, now I'm 33 years old. And so I'm really fortunate to have my relationship with him, that I can go to his house, he comes by the office, we can talk basketball. And, you know, he's just a special person. You know, he never lost himself in the game. He never lost his mind in the game. He continued to be a great family man, and he won a lot of games. And I, I really respect, you know, his ability to balance both. And then, you know, offensively, you know, he's a big-time offensive guy, one of the guys that can really score the ball and shoot the ball. Um, he, we, we talk offensive basketball all the time. And I'd like to think that playing for him, it makes you really respect offensive basketball and really respect, you know, what guys that can make outside shots can do for your program. How many times have you thought about wearing a bow tie and or coach wanting you, coach Phelan wanting you to wear a bow tie here and there? You know, uh, you know, I get that question a lot. Okay. You know, coach is so, so special and the bow tie is really his thing. And so, you know, I don't think I could, it's like trying to fill Shaq's shoes, mm -hmm. trying to wear coach Phelan's bow tie. <laughs> and so, you know, there'll only be one time where I'll wear his bow tie and I hope that's a long time from now okay. um, in honor of him. But I think I'd like to think that the way I coach and the way our program interacts and the way they work, I would like to think that you could see a lot of, of Jim Phelan in our program. Uh, under Shaka Smart, there was Havoc uh, being an assistant under him, and now you have Mayhem. Uh, was that defense uh, mostly influenced by Shaka Smart, or where did uh, your defensive philosophy come from? It's a combination. Uh, you know, at Emory and Henry, we, we averaged we forced 28 turnovers a game, and we played really, really fast. So it's a combination. Um, I think Coach Smart actually had more of an influence on me offensively on how to use the ball screen, how to teach kids, how to impact kids, how to be in their ear, how to love them. You know, I think he's given me, he gave me great experience on how to do that and do that as a person who is not only their leader but their mentor and a person they can trust. Um, and so I get a lot of that, and I think some of the interaction you'll see is probably very similar. Um, but, you know, everything else is kind of a hodgepodge to the kind of players we have and the players that we're able to recruit here. 
Um, and so I think it's a special place. I think this is a special job. I think, you know, Coach Phelan got it off to an unbelievable start. Milan Brown followed it up. I got big shoes to fill with all those guys, and I'm just trying to do it every single day with the players we're bringing in and make, it, make everyone proud of what we're doing. Again, Jamie and Christian joining us, the head coach of Mount St. Mary's, advancing to the semifinals of the Northeast Conference Tournament, now facing uh, fairly Dickinson University. You mentioned your team, although based in Maryland, is going to stay around in the New York City area, head to Fort Lee, New Jersey. What are the next couple of days going to be like for your team? Yeah, you know, we'll get back and we'll discuss that a little bit with the staff. Biggest thing right now is just hydration. Um, we'll probably over, overly hydrate our guys over the next 24 hours just to make sure we get them back, make sure they get a chance to spend some time with John Hoffman, our athletic trainer, who's outstanding. You know, any, any injury stuff we need to try to take care of as soon as we can. But, you know, the, the physical stuff, everyone's going to be hurting this time of year. We've got to win the mental battle with our guys, help them win the emotional battle. And so we're going to spend a lot of time in conversation, letting them enjoy tonight. That's huge. We'll probably take them and go get some milkshakes tonight. Um, we get milkshakes on Roadwinds because um, we have fun. And so take them and go get some milkshakes tonight. Enjoy tonight. We'll worry about whoever playing tomorrow. Our staff will be hard at work throughout the course of the night. We'll put together a great game plan. But, again, this time of year, it's all about emotional emotional toughness, emotional awareness, and having true, true understanding of what your team needs. And a lot of that is confidence and belief. What is your favorite flavor of milkshake? I'm a strawberry milkshake guy. Strawberry. You know, I'm, I'm stuck with strawberry. I mean, I think some people like to change it up. I like to stick with what works. As you saw in the second half, there were BK. It was working, so we just wrote it out. <laughs> uh, and you've been a strawberry milkshake guy for a long time or recently? Strawberry most of my life. And every every now and again, just, a, you know, if you're at the right spot, a good vanilla milkshake. I like to keep it pretty simple. Um, but I know these guys get all kinds. Probably on the bus is Oreo. Um, and so there'll be a ton of Oreo milkshakes handed out somewhere in Jersey tonight. <laughs> Jamie and Christian, the head coach of Mount St. Mary's, advancing to the semifinals of the Northeast Conference Tournament to face Fairleigh Dickinson. Jamie, and thank you so very much for the time. Congratulations on the win. Best of luck and success to your team for the rest of this conference tournament and beyond. Thank you so much for having me on. Go Mount. Chocolate. Chocolate is my favorite milkshake flavor. We thank Jamie and Christian as well as Caitlin Samiti so very much for joining us on episode number 25 and making episode 25 so very special. And that just about does it for the latest A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. But again, log on, stay tuned to A Lot of Sports Talk and a lot of sportstalk.com. We have our Survive in Advance tour going on right now. We will be in a different city for seven consecutive days covering championship week and different conference tournament games. We, after recording this, are going to pack up, head to Boston, Massachusetts, and cover the quarterfinal round game in men's basketball of the Patriot League between Boston University, the number three seed, and the number six seed, American University. And then for three more days after that, cover more championship and playoff sports specifically college basketball but we'll take a break and cover the national women's hockey league as well as the isabel cup playoffs start as well and later on we will have the biggies tournament covered the atlantic 10 tournament covered the ncaa tournament covered as well but we have other sports to talk about also including major league baseball so on later editions of the a lot of sports talk podcast we will talk about different sports that are about to get underway that are about to hit the playoffs uh mls is about to get underway as well so we'll have some talk about major league soccer as well going forward uh we thank you so very much for joining us for episode number 25 of the a lot of sports talk podcast my name is adashina koiki and we will see you next time and very shortly for episode number 26 right right thank you take care bye-bye